everybody. Welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. And today we are going to be going through a trauma case study. So if you read the website straightanursingstudent.com, you might have seen this case study there. If you haven't and you feel like there's a ton of information that we're going over, check it out afterwards just to reinforce what you're hearing by reading it. But it's one of my most popular posts on the website, so I thought it would make a really great podcast episode as well. So my disclaimer is that this is not a real patient. All the problems are real. I've dealt with each of these issues here and there in different scenarios. I don't think I've had a patient specifically with all this stuff happening all at the same time, but you could. And it is just an excellent example of how priorities change in nursing, whether you work critical care, trauma, tele, the floor, home health, whatever. You're always reprioritizing. You're always reassessing. It's a very fluid kind of thing. You know, you might start off the day with a plan. That does not mean that your plan is going to be relevant two hours later or five hours later. So I wanted to share with you a case study that shows how you're constantly reassessing, reevaluating, and reprioritizing. So again, if you feel like it's a lot, you can check out the actual case study originally as it was shared with you guys at straightanursingstudent.com. Okay, so here we go. It's your first shift. You're working four nights in a row. I don't know why you did that to yourself, but you put yourself on the schedule for four nights in a row. Maybe you've got a stretch of days off coming up. I think that after you get through these four nights in our scenario, you're going to need them. So here it is, your first shift, four in a row, and you're in for a tough, tough row, guys. Your shift, it's going to start out nice and calm, right? Lull you into that false sense of security, as many shifts do. But around two o'clock, you're going to get a new admit coming from the operating room. You take report on a 23-year-old post-surgical trauma patient that had come in through the emergency room earlier, having been involved in a pedestrian versus auto accident. Your patient is the pedestrian, and she lost that fight. The patient was crossing the road on a dark, rainy night when she was struck by a vehicle at approximately about 30 miles an hour, so fast enough to do some serious damage, especially to a pedestrian. Her injuries are pelvic fracture, very common in any kind of trauma situation, a severe brain injury with a skull fracture to her left parietal region, and an 8-centimeter scalp laceration, so very bloody, a right lung contusion, right ribs 3 through 6 fractured, right clavicle fracture, a closed right femur fracture, an open right tib fib fracture, closed right ulna radial fracture, face laceration of the left cheek, and scattered abrasions. So when you look at her injuries, she has a lot of things wrong with her right side, and then her head 
is hit on the left side. So if I think about how this accident happened as she was crossing the street, she was most likely hit by the vehicle on her right side and fell and hit her head against the pavement on the left. So when you have traumas, you can look at the injuries a lot of times and kind of see how things happened. So this patient was intubated out in the field by EMS and brought in by helicopter to your level one trauma center. They place a Foley cath in the ED, send her off to CT to look at her head, neck, chest, and pelvis. And her initial assessment reveals the following. Now this was down in the ED. She had a GCS of six. She was not opening her eyes, not responding to speech, and withdrawing only to painful stimuli. Gross hematuria noted in her urine drainage bag, so she's got blood from the bladder or somewhere along that line, the ureters. Profuse bleeding from her head and bleeding from her open right tib-fib fracture. They take this patient to emergency surgery for a decompressive craniotomy with a bone flap, EVD placement, and an exploratory laparotomy with bladder repair. So her initial biggest problems are that she's got a GCS of six and a pretty good head injury. So they're going to fix that right away with that decompressive craniotomy. And when we say with bone flap, that means they're taking a piece of skull off so that the brain can swell more safely and not put as much pressure on itself. And then the EVD placement is to allow for drainage of cerebral spinal fluid to also keep the intracranial pressure within normal limits. And then her blood in the Foley bag is showing that she's got some pretty good bleeding happening. Her bladder has been seriously injured, and they're going to repair that right away as well. She will have more surgery. But right now, these are the pressing things, and this is what they're fixing. She comes to you, to the surgical ICU. What are you going to see and do for your patient? So remember latte, have you learned about the latte method yet? If you haven't learned latte, go to straightanursingstudent.com and check it out. It is a symptomatic way of looking at your patient's problems, what you'll see, what you'll do about it, which is really the main gist of nursing, right? We see problems, we fix them. We anticipate problems, we try to avoid them. Really, that's it right there. That's what we do. So you're going to use latte to kind of just guide your thinking to know what you're going to do for this patient. So the L in latte stands for look. What is she going to look like? Well, after a decompressive craniotomy with a bone flap, your patient's going to have this big gauze dressing on their head. She has an EVD, so you will see that, um, a thin catheter snaking out from underneath a dressing on the head somewhere, and it will be connected to a drainage device that looks way more complicated than it actually is. She's going to be on a ventilator because her Glasgow coma score is still six, and 
She had that exploratory laparotomy, remember, because they had to figure out where all that bleeding was coming from. She's going to have an abdominal dressing and possibly a drain in place there. If C-spine is involved, she'll be wearing a collar. Our gal's C-spine was cleared by that CT scan, so we don't have to deal with a C-spine collar. So good. So the next letter in latte is A, and that stands for how will you assess this patient. So the main assessments you're going to be doing on a post-surgical patient who's had neurosurgery and a more general abdominal surgery is um, obviously neuroassessments and her hemodynamics. So what is she doing neurologically? What's her Glasgow score? Are her pupils equal? Is she following commands, withdrawing to pain? Is she posturing? Is she communicating? Is she making purposeful movements? Is she having seizures? Things like that. Are there any signs of shock? Is she bleeding anywhere? Um, What's her blood pressure doing? And because she's on a vent, you're going to also keep a close eye on her respiratory status as well. Is she compliant with the vent? Do her lungs sound okay? Are her lungs sounds equal bilaterally? What's her O2 saturation? Is she breathing on her own or is she riding the vent? What kind of tidal volumes are we getting? Meaning how big, bre- uh, how big of breaths is she taking? So those are kind of some main assessment things that you'll be doing. Of course, you'll also be monitoring for infection, monitoring her temp things like that. The T in latte, the first T is for tests. What tests can you anticipate this patient having? So because she's on a vent, you're going to do an ABG at some point to make sure she's being ventilated adequately. Typically, they'll um, do an ABG right after intubation, maybe, you know, within half an hour or so. And then whenever they make any significant vent changes, like trying to wean down, they will check another ABG about 30 minutes to an hour after that change. You're also going to keep a really close eye on her blood counts, white count, things like that, on her coags. Make sure that, you know, bleeding is controlled, infection isn't occurring. You'll also want to watch for the chemistry panel You want to definitely keep electrolytes optimized, especially in trauma patients. You can probably expect that this patient will be getting more CT studies done because they really want to keep a close eye on what's going on inside her head and watch for any hydrocephalus that could be present. She's going to get daily chest x-rays most likely since she is on a vent and has that rib clavicle fracture. She may also get some cystogram studies to keep an eye on how her bladder is doing. Um, That'll show if that bleeding is still occurring. You'll definitely want to keep a close eye out for that. The next T in latte is for treatments. How is this patient going to be treated? So if you read my book, Nursing School Thrive Guide, and if you haven't, I highly recommend it. You will recall that I talk a lot about prioritizing continuously. So like I said earlier, the treatment or the plan that you have at 3 a.m. is probably going to be a lot different than the treatment or the plan that you're providing at 6 a.m., depending on their condition. If they're stable, then you're plan and treatment at three is going to be the same at six. But if there's any change, you have to change and you have to keep up with what's going on with your patient. 
For a fresh post-op patient who has had a decompressive craniotomy, um, a lot of your interventions and treatments are going to be focused on keeping the ICP, the intracranial pressure, within normal limits. You'll be giving pain medicine. You're going to be giving sedation medicine, antibiotics. You might be giving packed red cells if they've got blood loss. And then you also note that we haven't fixed any of her fractures yet. We're waiting until morning on that when the orthodox come in and they're not life-threatening and they're not limb-threatening. So for now, we're just keeping an eye on those, keeping an eye on bleeding, keeping an eye on pedal pulses, things like that. But we're really focusing right now on neuro interventions and neurostatus and hemodynamics. And then the E in latte is education. So you always have an education component for pretty much everything you're doing in nursing. So at this point, you're not going to be able to educate a patient with a GCS of six, but you could be educating the family. So one of the most important things about education with your patients or their families is assessing their readiness to learn. At this point, at the acute phase of a trauma and pretty massive surgery, they're going to be easily overwhelmed. Things that I would hit on at this phase with the family is pain control, sedation, ICP management. That's about it. So that's a quick way that you can use latte, not just to absolutely rock your nursing school exams, but in real life, working with a complex patient with a lot of problems. Okay, so you got report on that patient. I think it was, what, around 2 or 3 in the morning at 2 a.m.? And it's now 4.30 a.m. Your monitor alarms start going off for an elevated ICP, which is reading at 23. So what are you going to do about an ICP of 23? If you don't understand anything about ICP management or even what it is, don't worry about it. That's not really the point. The point is that it is too high and you're going to do something about it. So the very first thing that you want to always do when any of your alarms go off is get in the room. If you're not already there, don't look at the monitor first. Look at your patient first. A lot of times what you see when you look at the patient is going to not match at all what is happening on the monitor. And there are many, many, many reasons for that. So go in the room, look at the patient. In this case, you find her head's crooked off to one side. Her knees are pulled up too high. Her temp is elevated. She's breathing fast and she's not really synchronous with the ventilator. You check that EBD and you don't really see any drainage since you last drained it an hour ago. So there's a lot of things wrong with this picture that could be causing that ICP to be elevated. So one of the things you're going to do is straighten the patient's neck to allow the CSF to drain more freely down, right? So down its normal path. You want to ungatch her knees. You know, a lot of times on the beds, we gatch the knees to keep the patient from sliding down repeatedly. Uh, in a patient with elevated ICP, you, you could probably gatch a little bit, but I wouldn't gatch them a lot. And when I say gatch the knees, I'm talking about lifting the part of the bed underneath the knees so that they are bent slightly. That's just going to cause a 
bit higher increase in intrathoracic pressure, which can cause ICP to go up. So ungatch her knees. Now she's fighting the vent. Obviously, she's tachypnic and dyssynchronous. So let's give her a little extra sedation and some pain medication. She's probably in a lot of pain. Check that EVD. Make sure there's no kinks in the tubing. A lot of places, policy states that you can briefly drop the level of the drainage bag to ensure that it's patent. So you do this and you note that there is drainage, so there's no kinks or clots, so that's not the issue there. You want to initiate some cooling measures because she does have a fever. Um, elevated fever can cause ICP to go up. You give some IV Tylenol and also can use ice packs along the great vessels. You want to make sure, though, that if you are using ice packs, that you don't cause any shivering because shivering increases ICP as well. Pain medications such as morphine can help decrease shivering a lot. So if your patient's shivering and ice packs are the only way that you can get their temp down, they're not responding to Tylenol, then you just have to give them a whole bunch of morphine. And in some cases, you have to give a paralytic. But we won't go into all of that here. The point is... You did a whole bunch of things to try to help your patient's ICP come down, and you're going to give it a few minutes and reassess. For those of you who are still really caught up on the fact that you'd love to know more about ICP management, there's a whole post about that on the website. So go there, search for ICP, you'll find it. Um, okay, so that was at what time? 4.30. It's now 4.45. You've gone up on sedation and pain medicine. Your patient is now breathing in synchrony with the ventilator. Their ICP is now 18 to 19, hovering near the top end of your parameters. Usually the top parameter is 20. You want to keep it under 20. So you're going to keep a close eye on this patient. Just because she's 18, 19 now doesn't mean she's not going to bump back up above 20 anytime. So the rest of your shift goes great. You report off to your nurse friend in the morning and go home and sleep. When you come back that night, this is what you hear in report. Your patient went to surgery at 10 that morning for an open reduction internal fixation of the right tib fib fracture, the right ulnar radial fracture, and the right femur fracture. Her hemoglobin from before surgery to after surgery dropped from 8.5 to 7.2. So you are now doing serial H and H every six hours. Your next draw is at 2200. Her temp did spike to 39.1. The day shift nurse drew cultures and got antibiotics um, continued. The ICPs are still hovering around 18 to 20. The neurosurgeon changed the height of the EVD from 10 millimeters of mercury to 5 millimeters of mercury. You don't need to know the details about that right now. Just know that it's going to probably help the drainage. The EVD drainage has been steady at 10 mils an hour throughout the shift. Her Glasgow score remains at 6. She's still on the vent. And the plan is for her to have her pelvic fracture fixed the following day. You go in, you assess your patient, and this is what you notice. Her blood pressure is lower than it was the night before. It's hovering around 95 systolic. Maybe that's because she's still coming off anesthesia. Maybe, I don't know, it's been a few hours. Maybe that's because if she's still on propofol and fentanyl, is she on the same doses? You would definitely want to check into those things and see if you can find a plausible reason why her blood pressure would be lower than it was the night before. 
Her O2 sats are a bit lower than the night before. They were 98% then, and now they're around 93 to 95. Still normal, but what we're following is the trend, and it is a trend that is going in the wrong direction. Her temp is better. That 39.1 that she had earlier that day has resolved. Her lungs sound mildly coarse. And her ICP is 19 to 20. She's got good EBD drainage and she is adequately sedated. So about an hour later, you're doing all your charting and you hear your monitor alarm go off for an ICP of 22. You do all of your checks on the patient, the easy things that you can fix right then, positioning, her temp, is the EBD patent, all of that. Everything looks great, but her ICPs are still high. So even while you're in the room doing your assessment, you watch as that ICP creeps up to 23, 24. Now you got to call a neurosurgeon in the middle of the night. So your S-bar might sound something like this. Hi, Dr. Bob. This is Nurse Mo calling about your patient Ramirez in trauma ICU bed 10. She's had a decompressive craniotomy yesterday, and her ICPs are holding steady in the 23 to 24 range. She's a febrile, well-sedated, compliant with the vent. GCS remains at 6, and EBD drainage is about 10 mils an hour. Do you think maybe we could try some mannitol to get her ICPs down? So your neurosurgeon thinks this is awesome idea and orders Manitol Q4 hours PRN ICP greater than 20. You're going to check serum sodiums prior to each dose and hold for serum sodium greater than 146. So with those orders in hand, you give your first dose of Manitol and watch magically as the monitor shows the ICP dropping down to 14. Yay for you and yay for Manitol. It works great. So a few hours later at 2230, you notice that your patient's O2 sats have now dropped a lot. Now they're 74%. What in the heck is going on? So you hustle into the room and you press that little 100% FiO2 breaths button to give your patient a little extra help to give you a moment to figure out what's happening. You put your stethoscopes into your ears and assess you know, look at the ET tube quickly to make sure that it hasn't become dislodged. You listen to lungs and you don't hear any sounds on the right. And remember, she had rib fractures and a lung contusion on that side. So you call for help. Hey, can I get somebody in here? Need some extra hands. And immediately two or three of your nurse friends come in. You're going to pop her off the vent and manually breathe for her using the bag valve mask. So When your nurse friend pops in, you ask one of them to call for respiratory and one to get the doc on the phone and another one to put in an order for a stat chest x-ray. Okay, so I'm assuming you had a whole bunch of nurse friends show up and each one had a job to do. But what's going on? That's the real point. The real point is that you think that maybe she's had a pneumothorax because she's high risk for that given that she has rib fractures on that right side and now you can't hear anything and she's had a drop in O2 sats. So you're bagging the patient. The respiratory therapist comes in to take over, and you notice that there is a bit of tracheal deviation off to the left, and her blood pressure has dropped to 83 over 54. And what was it earlier? Mid-90s? So it's a bit of a drop. You relay this to the nurse who's on the phone with the doc right outside the room, stressing that she really needs to get up there right now. 
your patient definitely is having a pneumothorax, or at least that's what you suspect. And you really got to hop on this one quick. You ask another one of your nurse friends to obtain a large bore needle and a chest tube kit. So we are getting serious here. The doc arrives, agrees with your assessment of tension pneumo, and using that large bore needle performs an emergent pleural decompression. We didn't even wait for chest x-ray, but if we had time, you'd get that chest x-ray and that would confirm the diagnosis of a tension pneumothorax. Then you have to get that pleurovac in. So you get that in, you watch your patient's O2 saturation levels climb, you get a chest x-ray because there, there they showed up and you can confirm that placement of that chest tube. While you have the doc there, you tell her that your serial H and H's are showing a hemoglobin of 6.9. So she's going to order a couple units of packed cells. You give the blood, you keep it on that chest tube, and you watch as the patient's O2 saturation and blood pressure both improve. You give a couple mannitol doses throughout the night, and the patient's ICP hangs around 14 for the rest of your shift. You did awesome. You go home and sleep. When you come on the next night, the offgoing nurse reports the following. So this is your third night in a row. Your patient had her pelvic fractures repaired that day. She returned from surgery about 11.20 with a hemovac drain at that surgical site. The tachycardia that she's had since admission has slowed to normal sinus rhythm. You think maybe it's because the all her fractures are repaired. Maybe she's in less pain. Those pelvic fractures are very painful and patients definitely feel a lot better once that pelvic bowl has been stabilized. Urine output is averaging 75 mils an hour and sound the alarms. The biggest best news of the day is that her GCS has improved greatly. She's now a nine. So she's opening her eyes to speech, gets three points for that. She doesn't have a verbal response because of the ET tube. So she only gets a point for that, but she's localizing to pain and she gets five points for that. So this is a great improvement. So she really likes that EVD and she really likes that mannitol. The plan is to let her rest overnight, lighten up her sedation in the morning when the neurosurgeon comes by to assess her. So you go in, do your initial assessment, and you see that her vital signs are stable. Her ICP is a beautiful 11, and she's draining about 5 mils an hour from the EVD. So the drainage is definitely slowing down, but the tube is still patent, and it seems to be working fine. Her blood pressure is 129 over 67, heart rate's 85. You check the surgical dressing across her abdomen and the one at her hip. Both are clean, dry, intact. Her belly is soft. It's flat. She does grimace and move her hands towards her belly as you palpate. It's likely very, very tender. All the other dressings from prior surgeries are also clean, dry, intact. Her lung sounds are equal bilaterally. Her chest tube is patent. Her O2 saturation is 98% on an FiO2 of 30%. Her Glasgow remains at 9. She's slowly but steadily getting better. So at 2300, you notice that her blood pressure is kind of trending down and her heart rate is trending up. You're not really alarmed yet, but you're definitely keeping a careful eye on things. 
Currently, her O2 set is 94%, so down from 98. Blood pressure is 109 systolic, down from 129 systolic. Heart rate's 115, up from 85. And urine output is decreased from 50 mils an hour down to 25. You don't like this trend at all. And because you're a good nurse, you're going to do something about it, right? So you perform your midnight assessment and notice that her hemovac is full and it was empty two hours ago and now it's full. What's going on here? You drain the hemovac, put the patient's or pull the patient's gown back and see that her belly is not quite as flat. When you touch it, it feels much more firm and she responds in a much more pain-related way, not just a grimace, but an actual jump up in heart rate and a much bigger localization to that pain. You immediately go and call the orthosurgeon and you're getting pretty good at waking docs up in the middle of the night. So this S-bar is going to be super easy for you. You might say something like, Hey there, Dr. Sally. This is Nurse Mo calling about your patient Ramirez and trauma ICU bed 10. You performed an ORIF on her pelvis today, and I'm concerned she may be bleeding into the abdomen. Her blood pressure has dropped 30 points since 1900, most of that in the past hour. Heart rate is up from 85 to 115. O2 sets are down to 91 from 98, and urine output is decreasing. Her belly's a bit rounded and more firm than from my initial assessment. I'd like to get a stat abdominal scan, a stat CBC and coags, and ask that you come see this patient. So Dr. Sally, the orthosurgeon, agrees with your order requests and states that she's actually going to call for the general surgeon who's on site at the hospital right now. If the patient is currently bleeding, she has to go to surgery right now. Can't wait for Dr. Sally to get there. You anticipate this happening, so you get ready. You're going to have one of your nurse friends draw a rainbow. This means you're going to draw the three main studies that we do, a chemistry panel, a CBC, and a coagulation panel. These are in different colored tubes, so we always call it a rainbow. Another nurse is going to call the blood bank to ensure that the patient has units on hold and also call CT to tell them they've got a stat patient coming in. You're going to give your respiratory therapist a call so they can come put the patient on the portable vent and you get the patient packed up and ready to transport to CT. CT scans are typically really fast, so they run the scan, and a few minutes after you get back to the room, the general surgeon shows up, she assesses the patient, agrees with your assessment findings, and logs into the computer to view the scan, which is miraculously there super fast. She notes blood in the abdominal space and says what you've basically been anticipating is that we are taking this patient to surgery right now. You wheel the patient down, report off to the circulating RN and anesthesiologist and decide this is the perfect time to take a lunch break. You've done a great job so far. So about 90 minutes later, the patient comes back from the OR. The surgeon tells you that she had had a large hematoma in one of her pelvic vessels that ultimately burst, causing that drop in pressure and that distended abdomen. So the patient received four units packed red cells in the OR, and now you're back to doing Q6-hour H&H. The blood pressure has improved to 115 over 67, heart rate's 94, 
and O2 saturation is great, it's 98%. This was a close one and it could have gone way worse if you hadn't caught it. Thankfully, the rest of your night goes off without a hitch. And when the neurosurgeon rounds at 6 a.m., you have had your sedation off for about 20 minutes. The patient is moving around much more, opening her eyes spontaneously. She's not yet following commands, but her total Glasgow score is now 10. The neurosurgeon likes what he sees and states that if she continues to improve, she could likely be, likely be weaned from the vent soon, which is exactly what you want to hear. So your day shift nurse comes in, you report off and tell her that you're back again for your fourth night in a row that night. You really feel like this patient has run you through your paces and you hope that your last night is easier than the rest. So you go home and you sleep. So you're going to arrive that night for your fourth night in a row and this is the information that you get and report. Glasgow score is now 11. The patient is following commands and trying to write notes. Sedation is minimal. This is awesome news. The patient has been on CPAP for the past three hours and doing great. With a respiratory rate of 14 to 22 and O2 saturation levels greater than 95%. She's pulling in good tidal volumes and she's only on 30% FiO2. She is doing awesome. Now, there was some confusion on the website. Someone wrote and said they didn't know that a patient on a vent could be on CPAP. And they were thinking of the CPAP machines like you see the commercials for that people use at home. It's not the same thing. CPAP on the vent is just a different mode on the vent. They are still intubated. It's just that we change the ventilator around so that the patient is doing most of the work and they're getting some support from the vent. So don't think about them being on one of those CPAP machines like you see those commercials at, um, when you're watching too much daytime TV. So the patient's been on CPAP for the past three hours and doing great. ICP has been four to eight all day with minimal drainage from the EVD. That is amazing. The PM doc is planning to come swing by around 2000 to assess the patient. So your goals are to have an ABG done at that time and the patient off all sedation. So you can really assess for readiness to extubate. All of the vital signs are stable. All dressings are clean, dry, intact, and the hemovac is draining an appropriate amount of serosanguinous fluid. So you get your ABG done, you get your sedation off, and the doc comes by right on time, of course, because we're living in a fantasy world, right? Everything's done right on time. So after the doc looks at that morning's chest x-ray, glances at your patient's fabulous ABG results, sees that the patient is following commands and taking full deep breaths when asked to, they write in order to extubate. You feel like you're finally making some real progress with this patient. So in order to extubate your patient, you need your respiratory therapist and a syringe and a towel, and that's about it, and probably a nasal cannula. So you are going to first suction the patient's mouth and oropharynx thoroughly, getting everything really nice and clean. You want all secretions cleared from above the ET cuff. The RT is going to loosen the ET holder from the patient's face. Get that nasal cannula ready to go with, you know, two to four liters of O's. Your respiratory therapist then deflates the cuff, tells the patient to cough, and pulls out the tube. You'll probably, again, suction the patient's mouth because there'll be all kinds of goop in there, and they're going to want to spit it out, and it's gross. You place the nasal cannula on your patient and instruct her to not talk for a little while because her throat is going to be sore, A, and the vocal cords are very tender at that time, and 
if someone starts hollering right away, they can really hurt the vocal cords and even cause some additional swelling, which is never a good thing. So I always ask people, don't talk for an hour, whispers only. They're typically pretty good, but I've tried to say don't talk at all and it doesn't work. So now I just say whispers only and that seems to help. You encourage your patient to take slow, deep breaths through her nose and cough periodically to keep her lungs clear. You show her how to use the suction thingy, the yank hour, and she does great with that. Her O2 saturation is 99%. And when you ask her how she's doing, she gives you a thumbs up to say she's doing great. So now that you've got an unsedated patient who can potentially move around a lot in bed, she still has that EVD in place. And if you haven't learned about EVDs yet, don't worry about it. But if you have, you know that they have to maintain the same height as the EVD, or otherwise you could overdrain. So you explain to the patient and the patient's family, so this is that E part of the latte method, right, that she's not to abruptly change position or move the head of the bed. So everybody indicates they understand this, and she mouths the words, what happened? So you're going to give her a brief synopsis. Not telling her anything is going to make her more anxious, so giving people kind of a brief rundown of what happened is great. Focusing on the positive steps towards wellness that they're making is even better. So you might say something like, you were in an accident four days ago and badly injured. You've had several surgeries for a head injury and broken bones. You currently have a drain in your head to keep the swelling in your brain under control. You also have a chest tube in place to keep your lungs expanding normally. You also have a catheter in your bladder draining urine. Currently, everything looks good. Your vital signs are stable and your neurostatus is improving. The short-term plan is to keep your pain controlled and monitor your neurostatus throughout the night. To do that, I have to wake you up every couple of hours. So don't get too upset with me, but I have to keep checking on you. Now, I know this is a lot to take in, and I want you to try not to worry. Okay, that's my job. I'll be right out there all night, and I'm watching over you continuously. You're hooked up to monitors that may occasionally make some noise. Most of the time, those noises are false alarms or just picking up poor signals, and they aren't anything to be concerned about. So don't let them upset you. As long as I'm not alarmed, you don't need to be alarmed. Okay, so now that we've got that settled, let's talk about your pain, blah, 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 blah. So throughout the rest of the night, you're basically going to be on pain med duty and neuro assessment duty with this patient. Your patient is scoring a 14 on her Glasgow by the time morning rolls around and you report off to the oncoming nurse feeling like you have done an absolutely awesome job these past four nights. And you know what? You have. So that was a little trauma-based scenario looking at how priorities change, how assessment priorities change. You know, you've got someone who comes in for a head injury and they end up having a pneumothorax or they end up having a bleeding hematoma. So, you know, anything can happen. And it seems like the point where I start to think my patient came in for X and X is all they're going to have is when they'll start to have problem Y. And I'm reminded again that you can never take anything for granted, that you always have to stay on your toes and that you always have to do a thorough assessment on every patient every time. 
So again, if that seemed like a lot of information, go check out the actual blog post called Trauma Nursing Case Study at straightynursingstudent.com. And if you are in school and struggling with anything, I wanted to let you guys know that I am slowly but surely creating those premium study guides for you. So right now, I think there's eight of them that are completed. The last one that was put up was on IV therapy. It's one of my favorite ones. So if you go to the website, go to study guides, scroll down to premium study guides. I believe that's how it works and check those out. You can buy them separately or you can save money and get them as a bundle. And of course, there's also still a ton of great free stuff on the website as well. But when you buy things like the premium study guides or my book, it helps to keep this website coin because it is, it's a big job and it is my biggest passion in my life to share information and knowledge with you guys and help make nursing school a fun adventure for you. So I hope that this was enjoyable for you and check back in a couple of weeks. I'm not sure what the topic will be. I think it's TBD. I think we talked about it maybe being about weaning the ventilator. So we might talk about that. And then if you haven't been to the website lately, the last post we put up was about atrial fibrillation and atrial flutter. So if that makes your heart happy, go check those out as well. Thanks everybody and have a great day. This podcast is brought to you by straightanursingstudent.com. Copyright Mo Media.